This is episode 122 of Beyond the Bulletin, published on April 1st, 2022. Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Beyond the Bulletin. From the University of Waterloo, I'm Brandon Sweet, editor of the Daily Bulletin. And from Media Relations, I'm Pamela Smythe. On this podcast, we go beyond the pages and pixels of the Daily Bulletin to inform you about important news and views from our community. Keep listening for my conversation with Professor Emeritus and historian Ken McLaughlin. We discuss the legacy of President Emeritus Jim Downey and his term at the university during a difficult time for post-secondary institutions in Ontario. New episodes of the podcast come out every week, and you can find our archive of past shows and helpful links on SoundCloud.com. Please recommend us to your colleagues and connections at Waterloo. Thank you for joining us as we go Beyond the Bulletin. Now, here's what's been happening. The University of Waterloo's fourth president and vice chancellor, James Downey, died last week at the age of 82. And as we just said, we'll be talking more about his impact during the interview with Professor Emeritus Ken McLaughlin. So please keep listening. The university is also mourning the passing of computer science professor Edward Lank, who died on March 21st at the age of 49. Born on Prince Edward Island, Lank received an honors bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Prince Edward Island and a PhD in computer science from Queen's University. After completing graduate studies, Professor Lank worked as a postdoctoral researcher at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. In January 2002, he began his academic career as an assistant professor at San Francisco State University in their computer science department. And while at San Francisco State, he received a National Science Foundation Career Award. Professor Lank joined the Cheriton School of Computer Science as an assistant professor in June 2006. He became full professor in July 2018. With his colleague Michael Terry, Professor Lank co-founded Waterloo HCI, a university-wide consortium of faculty members and students who conduct research in the field of human-computer interaction. Professor Lank's primary research interests were in intelligent user interfaces, mobile, multi-touch, and free space gestural interaction, and movement and input modeling in interfaces. The consummate graduate advisor, Professor Lank, placed the interests of his students foremost by providing guidance and encouragement so they could perform research at their fullest potential. His goal was to mentor students so that they could become individuals who conduct strong research and prepare papers as independent scholars and scientists. A memorial service has taken place. In lieu of flowers, Professor Lank's family requests that donations be made to the Canadian Heart and Stroke Foundation or the France AVC National Foundation. We will put a link to the full tribute article on the School of Computer Science website, as well as video of the memorial service in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. Six young women have been recognized as the 2021 University of Waterloo Co-op Students of the Year. This is the first time that all six co-op students of the year have been women, and during Women's History Month, no less. Yes, indeed. Our congratulations go out to the following six women who performed exceptionally on their co-op work terms in 2021. Ingrid Kafka of the Faculty of Arts, Sarah Odonotsky of the Faculty of Engineering, Emma Schuster of the Faculty of Environment, Madison McBay of the Faculty of Health, Laura Bambulas of the Faculty of Math, and Camille Ho, Faculty of Science. The winners were announced during a virtual ceremony held on March 21st. We'll put the link to the full story where you can read the winner's citations in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. Now, here's what's coming up. This April, students will return to writing final exams in person. The exam period runs from April 8th to April 26th, with no exam schedule between April 15th and 17th. 
To mark this momentous return to tradition, the Registrar's Office and the Student Success Office have collaborated on resources to support students who may be experiencing their first in-person university exam period ever, and for instructors who may be a little rusty. The SSO has online learning resources to prepare for in-person final exams. Instructors can access a five-minute presentation on preparing for in-person final exams to deliver in the final weeks of the term. Student advisors can use these resources with students who may have questions about final exams. Students can also book a one-on-one appointment with a peer success coach until the end of the term to create a study plan for their exams and learn how to feel prepared. We'll put links to these resources in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. Good luck to all students, whether their exams are online or in person. And just in time for the return to campus, it's goose nesting season. This year, the geese are going to find campus a tad more crowded than usual. And each year, W Store releases a goose-inspired collection to celebrate the return of the university's iconic geese during the beginning of nesting season starting in April. This year, a campus-wide design contest was held for students, faculty, staff, and alumni to submit an original design to represent Waterloo's geese. The top submissions were featured on an Instagram poll for voting, and the winning design was by Iris Ching. She was inspired by sometimes passive-aggressive geese, Wait, passive-aggressive. I would say indifferent at their very best. I would say aggressive. (laughs) I would say they're very aggressive. And wanted to give them a friendlier face. Oh, I can't wait to see. The Nesting Season Collection allows university students, staff, and faculty to take home a piece of campus life, goose included. The collection includes a t-shirt and tote bag and is now available in-store and online. We'll put the link to the collection in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. You know, I was thinking that there are probably some new students and faculty on campus who have never experienced nesting season and don't know what to expect. So we're going to have to share some safety tips. So let's put some in the show notes. Sounds good. They can take it by surprise. I think the I think it can be boiled down to don't break eye contact and back away. <laughs> never turn never turn your back on a hissing goose. And don't run. Oh, yeah. They, they require very little runway in order to uh, take off and come at you. And come at you, they will. Well, the problem is, is that like a lot of people get injured, get injured because they're running away and they trip on things, right? My favorite is, is dr- driving through a parking lot on the university's campus and a goose very aggressively turning towards my van and rushing at it, not caring that it only comes up to my bumper. <laughs> it didn't matter. And I, I pity I pity the the poor people who've parked an A and B lot over the years only to return to their car to find that a goose is sitting on top of it. When I parked an A lot, there was a goose right under where you get the where you put your your pass to make the arm go up, and so it would attack you as you tried to put your card in the little machine. Well, I'd like to see someone try to swipe their card through the goose's beak. <laughs> Do that, you never play the ukulele again. <laughs> That's right. Now what? Now what? Indeed. <laughs> Get ready for two days of engaging and expert-led workshop sessions, award-winning keynote speakers, and opportunities to connect with colleagues from across campus on April 6th and 7th at the annual staff conference. The keynote speakers at the event this year include Spencer West, who will be speaking on leveraging talent with disabilities, and atmospheric scientist Catherine Hayhoe, who will be speaking on hope and climate change. The agenda is also packed with workshops and networking opportunities. This year's conference will be held virtually on Microsoft Teams. You can check out the agenda and register our portal. We'll put the links in our episode show notes. And now the interview. James Downey served as president of two universities. He led the University of Waterloo for six years during a challenging time of provincial budget cuts by two consecutive Ontario governments. And before that time, he was president of the University of New Brunswick. 
During his career, he made many notable contributions to post-secondary education at the local, national, and international level. In the interview, we hear from Ken McLaughlin, a friend, historian, professor emeritus, and a former dean of St. Jerome's University. He tells us about the impact that James Downey's had. Ken, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. What was your relationship with Jim Downey? I knew Jim from uh, almost from the beginning of his time at Waterloo. I had an interesting relationship with Jim Downey for a number of reasons. One of them, of course, was that I had been at Dalhousie University, so I understood the maritime connection, and we often chatted about that um, when he came to Waterloo, and we rather both enjoyed our time in the maritime, so that, that made for an interesting relationship. But my real relationship began when we started on celebrating the 40th anniversary of the founding of the university in which I was on the committee and ultimately resulted in the book called The Unconventional Founding, and I chatted with Jim a lot about what kind of themes we might develop in that book and how it could relate to this community. So that's it. In a, in a way, we had a unique relationship, both based on our own backgrounds and on the interest in this university. And in particular, I like to think about our commitment that we shared to the idea of being part of a community. The standards at Wardu have become so high that the community couldn't easily participate. And Jim said that was wrong. We're part of a community, and we have to go back and try to rebuild that relationship. When he first came to Waterloo, he gave a speech in which he talked about his idea for a university and how he was, it was like he said, rowing a dory. You always are facing where you've come from as you're moving into the future. And I thought, that's a wonderful idea. It's a great example. And the further you get from the shore, the closer becoming your ideas about what, what was once there. And every time I was with Jim in personal relationships, the idea of community always seemed to come up. So why do you think community was so important to him? Because when he grew up in Newfoundland, community was a dominant factor in his life. And then as a young man, he used to go in the summers and preach as a itinerant minister in various small communities. So he developed a clear sense of the importance of community in one's own identity. And I think that drove him. And he was part of Newfoundland when Joey Smallwood was shutting down the outports. And um, mm. that really recreated a powerful sense of community in people from the small communities in Newfoundland, of which Jim was one. So he had been out of Newfoundland for a, a long time, but <laughs> it was still a part of his identity, I guess, a dominant part. Yes, it was. And at the end, when uh, I went to see Jim about donating his papers to the university, it came out more and more the sense of community and about his own community in Newfoundland and the values that it had left and had created in him. And I think it's really significant that that was a driving force. So when the university faced its terrible problems with uh, the government of Bob Ray with funding cuts and then Mike Harris... And Jim's real drive was to maintain the sense of community in this university. And I've said previously that other places, the universities were badly divided and really harmed. And Jim's goal, along with Jim Kalflesh, his vice president and provost, was that they would retain the integrity of the university. That was their primary goal. 
I can't really express the, the sense of unhappiness that had succumbed almost all of us. We were taking pay cuts, taking time off work without pay, looking to see a future that was very dubious in the, at the very least. And marches and protests were occurring everywhere. And it was an unhappy time in Ontario. And I always felt that Jim Downey and his colleague, Jim Callflesh, his provost, really cared about this university and cared about everyone as a person. And there was something kind of magical and sensitive about those relationships. I used to talk about the two Jims because <laughs> Jim K and Jim D, as they were called, were both um, committed to the university in a remarkable way. It wasn't a career move for them. It was a, a way of life. It was Jim's sense of community was an overriding part of his character. We wanted to raise funds in this community for a chair in community studies or something like that. And Jim invited me to attend several dinners with prominent local benefactors. And the one evening that I remember so clearly was when one of them said to Jim, well, you've lost your Newfoundland accent. And he said, oh, no, I haven't lost it. I'm just setting it aside for tonight. And the delightful part of that was that we got a major donation from that person. And it really was about the idea of community. And I'll give you this much of a clue community health and community welfare, both um, Lyle Hallman and Ken Murray. What was his leadership style? He liked to consult widely before he made a decision. He wasn't just making a peremptory decision. And he knew everybody on campus, and he was very friendly and very gregarious. He was happy to huh. talk. But maybe that's part of being a Newfoundlander. He was happy to talk. <laughs> You know, but he was also pushing hard for universities across Ontario and in the Commonwealth. I mean, he was a natural leader among universities, and maybe it was my interest in universities that drew us together, too. Well, I think, as well as his sense of community, Jim believed in the importance of education as part of a community, as part of a province, both in New Brunswick and in Newfoundland, certainly, and indeed in Ontario. One time, he was being awarded... Uh, after his term as president of the Council of Ontario Universities. And the person reading the citation talked about him as president of the University of Ontario by mistake. And I thought, what a wonderful phrase, because in some ways, that's how Jim was. His, he was with the Council of Ontario Universities, the Council of Ontario Universities uh, Quality Council. He was with the Commonwealth Universities. He believed in... He could very well have been the president of Ontario universities because he saw universities as terribly important. Now, most presidents, I guess, do, but Jim made that part of his career. Hmm. But he was president at a difficult time for the post-secondary sector, particularly in Ontario. Terrible right? time when he came in as president. Both the, the cuts in the government of Bob Ray and forcing time off, called Ray Days, and then... Mike Harris cutting even further, and Jim desperate to hold the university together at a time when there were forces, certainly, that would have seen some of the larger faculties become dominant and some smaller departments be simply shut down as uneconomical. Oh. Absolutely. And Jim said, no, it's a community. We're holding this together. 
And he did that with, with great sensitivity. And I always appreciated that because I know he was under a lot of pressure to make hard decisions going the other way. That is to cut departments, small departments. So that would have been an easy way out. Yeah, for a lot of places, it was the, the recommended way out. Instead of that, we held everything together. And it was in part his leadership that where people were willing to work with him, for him, and by him to see the importance of the University of Waterloo staying as a full university, not maybe, to put another phrase, a technical school. When he left his term as president, he did a number of things at the university. One in particular was that he was the founding director of the Waterloo Centre for Advancement of Cooperative Education, or Watt Case. I was on the committee when Watt Case was started, and Jim and I often argued fairly intensely. The nice thing about arguing with Jim was he didn't hold it as a grudge. He would come back the next day, and it would be right back all over again. But what Jim thought was that co-op was a defining characteristic of the University of Waterloo co-op in all of its many forms, too, not simply in applied engineering. What he wanted to do was to make co-op better. And we had been going at this point for getting on to 50 years since co-op first started. And most of the time, the idea was to be able to figure out how to relate jobs and class, but in terms of student choices, not in terms of the quality that was delivered either in the classroom or in the employment area. And what Jim wanted to do was to integrate those two so that everything that we did in co-op was actually benefiting the students and it was part of their education, not just a form of opportunity to work. Oh, so what changes did he make then that we would recognize today? Oh, one of the biggest changes was the idea about work reports and getting credit for reports done for academic credit during a work terms. That was critical. And that's one of the things we argued about, who is going to pay the professors to mark them when we were already carrying a heavy teaching burden. Mm. (laughs) But uh, he won, and uh, it became a defining characteristic of co-op at Waterloo. But it was the whole idea of how co-op worked. We really didn't know much about it, even though we've been doing it for 50 years. We knew the technology that made it work, but not about the philosophy or the credit or the academic integration. And those are the things that he really emphasized in forming Watt Case. Co-op continues to be a differentiator for us globally. Yeah, I know. And uh, we owe Jim tremendously for that. And he did it after his term as president. But he had an idea that what distinguished Waterloo from other universities was in part based on co-op and about the experience that students gained in co-op and when they came back on campus, not to just lose that, but to integrate that into an academic program or an academic experience, which really means that it is part of who we are as a university in a very real way, in an integrated way, rather than as two separate parts, one the co-op job experience and one the academic. Jim was in a way able to integrate the two in ways that had not been thought of before. He also held a workshop for new university presidents. The younger presidents that I knew who attended those workshops found them incredibly helpful. And I was pretty skeptical at at the beginning. And and after I talked to them, I thought, you know, he's got something here that's really useful. Challenges of being president 
raised it to a whole new level beyond the academy and part of the community again, part of the province, part of the international level. It was very complicated and the relationships were critical. And Jim was a master of working relationships with people. That was part of his skill as a, as a person and as a president. But it's his personality too and how he could tell the stories because you know he was a consummate storyteller. So he could talk about these relationships in a way that wasn't just a formula, but it was real to them and real to him. So he preceded David Johnston. Yes, he did. As president. Uh, what was that transition like? It was an interesting one because David came in bustling with ideas. And uh, whereas where Jim came in as a peacemaker, almost as a pastor, which he'd been in his youth, to bring peace to the university and hold it together, David came in with the idea of it was already a great university. Now we're going to move it to the next level. He was a beneficiary of Jim Downey's presidency, absolutely. And then when the man who was serving as vice president of fundraising, whatever whatever name it was going under in those days, Ian Lithgow died shortly after David had arrived. Jim Downey stepped out of his retirement and filled in for Ian. And I thought, this is pretty remarkable because he's got another president here and he's actually doing this, going out on behalf of the University of Waterloo to raise funds for the new programs. And he was successful in doing that. But again, that's his sense of community his commitment to this community. But I always thought that was a pretty remarkable thing for him to do. But I will say this, it was David Johnson who pushed co-op into an international level with students from all over the world and our students going all over the world. And without Jim Downey's building of Watt case, I don't think that would have worked nearly so well. Mm -hmm. So he did benefit dramatically from that aspect of Jim's presidency or Jim's post-presidency, I guess. What would he have done as the pre president of the Higher Education Quality Council of Ontario? He's interested in making sure that the quality of education at all levels, and that's the significant thing because he chaired that commission of inquiry into education in New Brunswick for two, two full terms, that his idea was that education was so important to community. And so that was to create a way to measure and expand and improve education at all levels, not just at the university. He really cared a lot about students and took great pride in their success. Well, he had a class after he stepped down as president, he actually had a class in the English department. And we were doing, in my MA class, we were doing a project on, believe it or not, history of cooperative education at UW. <laughs> and uh, Jim used to come and chat with us and we did interviews with Jim and he related to the students and with remarkable insight that, that that pushed my own ideas about Waterloo in a different direction entirely. In part it was about the way engineering as a faculty solved problems and he created that as part of a whole mentalité that overrode the University of Waterloo in terms of problem solving rather than just rhetoric, although Jim's rhetoric was uh, second to none. He was a great storyteller. He was, he was, his public speeches were wonderful, literate, articulate, funny, witty, charming. He, it, those are his characteristics, and that, that's how he was. That was how he was in person, too. When, when we went to see him about d donating his papers, 
to the university. We spent a morning going through all of his files and all of his papers, and it was it was a memorable morning together as we looked through all of his collections of papers and documents and speeches and articles and his idea about about ideas and about the importance of ideas in a university was critical. Was it your idea that he donate his papers to special collections and archives at the university? I think Jim was asking about where he might donate his papers. Would it be Newfoundland? Would it be University of New Brunswick? And I said, no, no, it's got to be the University of Waterloo. And that's, I think, the relationship over choosing Waterloo for his papers, because I said people will identify him now and in the future with this university rather than going to a small outport in Newfoundland. What would you like to see happen to them or become of their contents? I like, well, they're already there and they're being indexed so that researchers from anywhere can access those papers and come here or in due course get them online. They're wonderfully witty and fun and some great speeches about when the Kennedy brothers, John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, both spoke at the University of New Brunswick. He uh, has a wonderfully witty account of the Kennedys at UNB and their speech, uh, absolutely priceless to read over and over again. Oh, I want to hear it. Can you tell us now? No, you can get the paper. You can get them. They're published. They're published, and I don't have them with me, but they're they're available in the library. Okay, I'll look it up. Why was there an idea to send his papers to the library? I don't know. Have we done that with all presidents? No, we don't. We didn't, and we should have. The papers talk about the internal decision making and the reasons for it. So, if you read the unconventional founding, my first book, which I did when Jim was president. We, we can see where Hagee's frustrations, Hagee as president, difficulties that he had, they're all written down in these memos. They're often written on the margin of the memo. So it's a real insight into the way decisions are made at a university, for example. For me, that was important. It was chair of the Council of Ontario Universities, which is the amalgam of all universities in Ontario. And so he was negotiating policy with the government of Ontario on behalf of all of the universities. He then went on from there to become chair of the Association of Commonwealth Universities in the entire Commonwealth, and in the same way was able to deal with the larger ideas about universities throughout the Commonwealth. And so his idea of the importance of universities as a, as a part of a civilization, as part of a culture, as an opportunity for students, and an opportunity for students to mingle within the Commonwealth, uh, really represented uh, Jim's, I think, maybe one of his highest goals. What else do we need to know about Jim Downey before we close today, Ken? I had an opportunity to have lunch with Jim, Doug Wright, Burt Matthews, and David Johnston. And I asked them all, or each of them, in turn, what was their most uh, important memory of their time as president? And Jim's answer was immediate and clear that he was able to hold the university together during the stressful times of the early retirement program and the terrible cuts. And I thought, that's right. That is it. That's what he was able to do. Many other presidents couldn't do that. And that was what he was proudest of. That and, of course, the sense of success of the university and, dare I say, students. Ken, thank you so much as ever for sharing your insights and your memories. It's wonderful to have you here with me.
it's it's a great opportunity to talk about someone whom I regard as my friend and colleague. And warm feelings for Jim will endure. Thanks to this podcast, they'll be shared more extensively than any other way that I can think of. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Beyond the Bulletin podcast wherever you get your podcasts and recommend us to your colleagues and Waterloo alumni. Please follow us on Twitter at UW Daily Bulletin. Stay safe, everybody, and do your part to help slow the spread of COVID-19 in our community. You can reach us by email at bulletin at uwaterloo.ca. Thanks for listening as we went Beyond the Bulletin. We should tell people that Ken McLaughlin's most recent book, entitled Preserving Our Past, the Ormston Heritage House, A Window into Waterloo Township's History, is at Wordsworth Books. We didn't plan any April Fool's activity. I'm just saying that right now. I'm glad. Thank you. Are you telling me? I'm telling you this. I'm also telling our listeners. So everything you hear is completely on purpose. We are not joking. (laughs) That's right. We meant to do this.